0: Let's cultivate our motivation. If we hold a grudge against even one sentient being, uh, we're not going to be able to generate bodhicitta. And if we can't generate bodhicitta, then there's no possibility of entering the bodhisattva path and becoming a Buddha. So, it's very important that we don't leave anybody out of our compassion and that we don't hold rancor and grudges for people or towards people. So, sometimes in our meditation, the people that we do hold rancor and grudges towards, the situation comes up in our mind and we want to purify, we want to let go, but our mind gets uh, very tangled up. This usually happens around people that we're very close to or people yeah, that we have many expectations for or a very complicated relationship over a period of time with. Or it could not be. Generally, it's those kind of people. And when we try and figure out why am I so angry and how do I let go, then our mind argues back, but they did this and that wasn't fair and how can I forgive them for this? And I do want to forgive them, but I'm so mad and I just can't let go of it. You know, You know, if they would only acknowledge what they did and apologize, then I could put it all to rest. So our mind gets very confused and very tangled up. And I don't know what I should do, and when that situation happened, what should I have done? And I can't figure out, you know, how I could have had a good motivation in that situation and what would beneficial action have been. And, yeah, so our mind just is becomes a mess with confusion uh, even though you know we we do want to let it go so one thing that I've uh, discovered is to just say to myself okay all that stuff happened in the past and from now on, I'm just going to love these people. Yeah, they did their best. They have their limitations. They're not perfect. You know, I probably, I contributed to the situation. They did. I don't want to have this messy mind of confusion about it. So I'm just going to decide now that I'm going to love them. And love here meaning I'm going to wish them well. And so you just kind of decide, okay, yeah. I don't, you know, it doesn't mean you have to go and apologize or you have to wait for them to apologize or you have to have a close relationship. But it's just, you know, I'm going to love them and wish them well and that's it. And then you put your mind in in that frame towards those people. And if a negative thought comes, you just say, wait, I've decided I'm gonna love them. I'm just gonna wish them well. That's it. And so you come back to that feeling again and again. And it becomes, you know, I found when I really make a decision yeah, I'm just going to love them, then it becomes easy, yeah, because I don't have to figure out what happened or how I could repair it or how I could repair, you know, what I could have done to prevent it. I'm just focusing now, and from now on, I'm loving them. I'm wishing them well. That's it. So try that. Yeah, try that and see what happens. And it feels very good inside when we can really, you know, make have that conscious decision. I'm just gonna wish them well, that's all. And then see what that does to your mood, and to your mental state. And then see if you can expand that thought, that feeling of wishing people well. Expand that to more and more people. And watch your heart really open as you do that. And from there, then generate the aspiration to attain Buddhahood so that you can actually bring happiness to others, especially by leading them on the path. anything move in your mind. It's an interesting thing to to just, you know, they are the way they are and I'm not going to change them. So let's just love them for what they are. Yeah. And uh, yeah, then it feels much better for them and for us. Mm-hmm. Where my
1: mind gets caught sometimes, that it's sometimes not very beneficial, is I get caught up in this loop of, but I need to understand, I need to understand them.
0: Mm. I need
1: to understand why they did this. I want to understand why or where or how it happened, you know. So my mind gets caught in these details. Yeah. And it sort of loses the big picture and it gets into the spinning, spinning, spinning. Because
0: we don't know why it happened. Yeah. There were elements from this life. There are elements, uh, karmic elements, for previous life. The other person... Probably very often they can't even tell us what their motivation was and why they did what they did anyway. Sometimes they don't understand it. So sometimes this wish of, you know, I want to know why they did it, yeah, is it just that's what gets us spinning and makes us quite miserable. And you just have to say, I don't understand why they did that. I mean, one of the people I do this with, I thought they were one way, and then something happened. And they displayed these characteristics that are like totally the opposite from how they were. And I don't understand. And it's like, it doesn't matter whether I understand or not. My job right now is just to love them. Why this happened, who knows? They don't even know, I don't even know, you know. If I want to know that bad, then I should use that as the motivation to become a Buddha because then I'll be omniscient and I'll know why that person did that to me. It's like, forget why they did it, who cares? So I thought I'd start with some of the questions again tonight. Um, This one didn't seem, where are you? Um, Venerable Thompson? it didn't seem so much uh, to be a question, uh, you know? Or could you put it in the form of a question? Because I didn't see any question marks in it. (laughs) (laughs) It's this long. <laughs> Can I? Well, yeah. The thing about uh, bliss being the thing that purifies is I'm stuck there. Yeah. Okay. So all four opponent powers are what are necessary to purify. Okay. And regret is the four, the chief one when you start out. Okay. When you're, you're establishing a relationship with the Buddha and you're opening up and telling the Buddha, you know, look, I was a jerk and I did this and this and this and I really regret it. And, you know, unlike we do to ourselves and other people sometimes do to us, the Buddha doesn't go, yeah, you are really a jerk. How could you have done that? And I hope you really feel sorry and you burn in hell. You know, no, that's not going on with the Buddha. The Buddha is so happy that we're purifying. And so, you know, he shows that compassion towards us, radiates all that light. It comes into us and you know if the word bliss gives you trouble it doesn't mean like ah, 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 you know uh, you know like you know i'm having an orgasm or it's kundalini or it's ah. no it doesn't mean that okay it just means uh, you know that you're you're you feel peaceful and satisfied and fulfilled inside, you know, is I've done that purification. Yeah, I've put I'm putting it down. I'm learning from the experience. I'm putting it down. I'm giving out up trying to figure out every last little detail of what they said and what I said and what they did and what I did. And I'm just I realized I made some mistakes. I see them. I acknowledge them. I purify. And then you relax and feel good about it. And imagining the light from the Buddha coming into you gives you that ability to just, you know, feel feel at peace with yourself. Okay? So don't think bliss like, you know, my whole body is tingling and whatever it is. Okay? Yeah? Okay. So while doing the meditation on the Buddha for this retreat, is it appropriate to substitute they or she for he when referencing the Buddha? Uh, no. No. The Buddha is in the form of a man. You visualize him as a man. Yeah? but. Actually, you know, a holy being doesn't have a gender. Yeah, they're just manifesting in a particular form. When you're Buddha, you're not a man, you're not a woman. But when you manifest in a particular form, you know, if Buddha showed up here, we would say, he is here. Yeah. Yeah. When
1: visualizing my root guru coming Mm -hmm. from the heart of the buddha and sitting on my head if Mm -hmm. my root guru is a woman Mm -hmm. um how does that work in whether i'm visualizing a gender there
0: okay because what you're doing is you're imagining um not your actual root guru but your root guru in the form of Jason Kappa or in the form of the Buddha, and you're thinking that the mind of your guru and the mind of the Buddha are the same. Okay, so it's not like you're visualizing the actual person and like, oh, but it's a she, but the Buddha's a he, and yeah, no, it's the form is the Buddha, but the nature, yeah, is is uh, inseparable. Okay? That makes some sense? Okay. Is samsara eternal and it's impermanent? No, it's not eternal. It doesn't last forever. It lasts until we decide to practice and free ourselves, but it's not eternal. Is it impermanent? Yes. It changes moment by moment by moment. It never remains the same. How do you, meaning me, define virtue and virtuous from a Buddhist perspective and worldview? I would say, uh, the way I generally use it, there's many different meanings of virtue. It's in volume three. Yeah. If you look in volume three, there's a whole list of different ways, different meanings of virtue. Um, but the way I primarily use it, or the way it's primarily used, is uh, that which brings a happier, pleasant result. Yeah. Okay. Is the experience of inhabiting a human body a necessary step on the path to full enlightenment or Buddhahood? Are there necessary things we can only learn, experience, and accomplish in a human body? When you think that we've been in samsara uh, since beginningless time, we've been in lots of human bodies. Okay, so it isn't a, a thing of uh, must I take another human body in order to understand certain things? We've you know, they say a precious a precious human body, which isn't just any human body, it's one with all the conditions that so we can practice, that that's a very beneficial um, kind of life to have because it's compared to other types of rebirth it's is comparatively easy to practice. Yeah Are there certain things we can only learn as a human? I don't think so. I mean, you have to learn the path, and that, you know, uh, human life is the best way to do it, but I don't think think in that way of, you know, are there only certain things that you have to learn as a human that you can't learn otherwise? I, I don't know. I just... If somebody can explain the question to me in a different way. I mean, I think I understand it, but I just, when you see beginningless time, you know. And it's also not like there's a whole lesson plan laid out of things we have to learn. Yeah, You find in the New Age way of thinking, they talk about, you know, uh, there's certain things that you have to learn each life, as if, there's God or somebody who created a lesson plan and you have to take those different rebirths and learn those things. It's not like that in Buddhism. So I don't know who who did the question, yeah. Um, I, as far as I understand, enlightenment is, is a path that happens in stages, right? And mm-hmm. so um, I'm wondering,
1: I guess, to ask a follow-up question with that might
0: help is um like when uh, being attained buddhahood at that Mm -hmm. moment or whatever when that Uh happens can that be in any any type of Uh, rebirth or any realm okay usually um by the time you're you're at that level you're a 10th level bodhisattva you know ready to to become a buddha You create your own Akanista, pure land in which you get enlightened. Okay? So, um, you know, I don't know, maybe the body's sitting here, but you've created an Akanista, pure land, and that's, that's for paramitayana bodhisattvas, for bodhisattvas practicing the tantric path and the what they say is even the tenth level bodhisattva has to switch from paramita yana to tantra That's that's they say you can do in a human body but i think you can also do it in you know i mean because when you're at that level you can create so many different kind of bodies and manifestations so They just say this one's a good, a good kind of body to, to do it in and to practice tantra in. Do you know of a, an, of a key to the figures in the refuge marriage field? There's one for the Guru Puja marriage field, but I haven't found one for the refuge. Uh, no, I don't know of any. But um, if you have the uh, the refuge merit field. You know, take it out. I think other people would probably want to see it. And I would assume that the one for refuge is quite similar, you know. Um, you want to know exactly which order they're sitting in? I don't know if there's, uh, if all the refuge vis- uh, Tonkas are exactly the same. I've never compared them. Yeah. So look online, look in the books. I don't know of anything in particular. Yeah. Okay. Shall we okay. So we Okay. So as I was preparing for today, I realized that uh, at the end of this chapter, there's more about the whole thing of requesting inspiration and. Uh, what what that means and um, the whole part I told you about last time about you know can you receive uh, a blessing from FDR it's in there <laughs> okay but let's come back to uh, to where we where we are um you know that question that arose last time about Uh, You know, do you really create extra merit on merit-multiplying days? And what happens if the Chinese calendar and the Tibetan calendar are different? And, uh, you know, those kinds of things. So those kind of subtle questions about karma, those are things that the Buddha needs to answer. It's not something that I can say. Yeah. But I think one of the comments that somebody uh, online was saying was how they feel uh, the specialness of the day when everybody comes together and everybody's thinking of the Buddha qu- Buddhist qualities and everybody together is is feeling joyous about that and wanting to follow the path. And uh, so you can see in, in a way, it's it's our mind that makes something very powerful. Yeah. And there's something from the object, too. But it's hard to always say what it is from the object, you know. Because when I asked my teacher, one of my teachers about this, you know, I was saying, is there something astronomically in the cosmos that's happening that makes this day special where you create more merit, you know, It's a kind of question, like I said last time, that a Westerner asks and a Tibetan would never even ask or think about that. Yeah, it's just, okay, they say that, yeah, must happen. So, Okay, so we're on the section, the actual section called The Actual Session and Dedication at the Conclusion. Okay, so where we left off, the Buddha's on top of our head, facing the way, the same way as we do. We've um, said the Buddha's mantra and purified, and then we do a glance meditation where we review all the different uh, meditations on the path. Okay? And so there's many of those glance meditations in Volume 1 in the Blue Prayer book. Okay, so the majority of meditations on the stages of the path Involve analytical meditation on the topic, followed by stabilizing meditation on the conclusion we have reached. So before meditating on a topic, have in mind uh, an outline of the major points and then ponder them in order one by one. And so uh, that's why the book Guided Buddhist Meditations was written, so that you have some outlines you know to start with where you can go and and meditate according those and and they're all uh on tape you know audio recorded so you can meditate like that and that gives you an idea and then when you read things you can make your own outlines and or you can read something and fill in the outlines that uh, are in the book because uh The outline for Precious Human Life was, you know, it doesn't have all 18 points in it. It just has some of the points. So as you become more familiar with those points and those points don't confuse you, then you can add it in, you know. Uh, I didn't put in all the, the points at the beginning because I was just remembering when I first started and that was one of the first meditations they taught, And the first point was, you know, be glad you weren't born in the hell realm. And I was like, huh? You know, so I, I, you know, I didn't even really know about rebirth, let alone different realms. And so that point didn't make much sense to me. Okay. So I kind of... uh, I simplified that meditation. Now, of course, when I do it, I go back and I have all those points in there because now I understand them and they make more sense to me and I can meditate on them. Okay, Okay. until you become familiar with a topic, make an outline of its points by referring to this book, uh, meaning this book or Guided Buddhist Meditations, and add um, pertinent points from other Lam books. If you read, listen to, or watch a teaching on the topic before the meditation session, jot down a brief outline of salient points to meditate on. So that's very helpful when you, you know, hear a teaching like this. If you don't take notes during it, when you go back, just, you know, immediately write down some of the important points so at least you can remember what they are, and see how to develop the points so that you can reach a certain conclusion. Okay, And so it's important to understand what conclusion you want to reach, too, and, and how that, uh, those points in that particular order help you reach that conclusion. Yeah. Because in that way, then you can really do the meditation in a way that is going to affect your mind in, in uh, a beneficial way. Okay. Otherwise, like, you know, uh, so, you know, there's the nine point de- death meditation. If you do it, and you can really see how things are developed, you know? First, death is definite. Then, oh, but the time of death is definite. Then, when I... Indefinite. indefinite. Yeah, death is definite. The time is indefinite. And what can I take with me when I die? Not my body, my friends, or um, my wealth, okay? And so if you have those points, you know, in that order, then you know that those are the three main things that you want to really conclude. And when you really understand those points, it really something in your mind shifts. Yeah. And you see that the purpose of the death meditation isn't that you panic and become terrified and freaked out because you're gonna die but rather you you know you've meditated on precious human life you value your life you want to practice the path and now you're saying oh you know i don't have all the time in the world to do this okay and then that meditation really becomes powerful to you okay so you know there's a, there's a, a way that these meditations are structured and that the order of the meditations are structured to really help your mind develop. So that's why it's very good at the beginning to become familiar with all the the meditations, become familiar with the uh, uh, order. Like I said in this series of, uh, you know, we've changed the order in a few points, but I think it, it doesn't matter. Yeah? But it just helps you, you know, to have a big understanding of where where you're going, okay? Then, also, if you go to uh, a teaching, you know where on the path that teaching uh, belongs. Because, you know, if you're living uh, someplace, then you can get teachings on a text from the beginning to the end and understand the development. But lots of times guest teachers come, they teach for two, three, four, five days on a particular topic. And then afterwards you get confused. So oh, I just studied this topic, but the teacher who was here last week taught on the other one. And how do they all go together and which one do I practice? And I was practicing what I learned last week and then... One week later I get a whole new topic. How do what do I do with that one? Do I just start on this one? You know, and so you don't know how what to do with your practice. So if you know, you know, the order and how the meditations interrelate, then when you hear something, you know where to fit it in. And then as you cycle through the long ram, you know where to bring those teachings in. Okay. And it can be very confusing at first because there's so many topics and so much to learn. And especially, uh, you know, this, because I was thinking in in old Tibet, you usually stayed someplace and you got a whole teaching from beginning to end, you know? And people traveled around and, and things, but they usually would teach. A text from beginning to end and you would hear it beginning to end and now you know everybody's in such a hurry the teacher comes they're there for a few days then they go on and you know and the students are not all at the same level because some have been there a long time and some have not been and even the teachers teaching there for three days you know some students come for two days some students one day some come the first day some come the last day you know so it's really difficult you know how do you really teach this with you know how do people really learn when nobody's staying put (laughs) yeah and so that's the the benefit of like living somewhere and going to the dharma center, living somewhere, having the teachings from beginning to end, okay? But given, you know, that you may not have that situation, then at least if you know the whole overall structure, yeah, when somebody comes and teaches a topic, you know basically where it goes and how to integrate it into your practice. Okay. And you also know which practices are more advanced than you can really handle right now so that you maybe study them and review your notes, but you don't drop everything you've been practicing to practice that because you know where it belongs in the long run. And you realize, hey, you know, I have to do... Some preliminary work to work my mind up to the stage where, you know, really engaging with that kind of meditation in depth is going to be worthwhile. Okay? Yeah. And I say this because, uh, you know, you will, um, yeah, well, anyway, <laughs> some of you may have experienced that. Using reasoning and logic to understand the meaning of each point, or use reasoning and logic to understand the meaning of each point and make examples from your life that pertain to the points. So that's really important. You have to make examples from your life. So it's not, you know, oh, precious human life, there's, yeah, the eight freedoms and the ten fortunes, yeah, so what? what's next? It's like, do I have these? Do i have these eight freedoms do i have these 10 fortunes what does each freedom how does that benefit me what does each fortune do how does that benefit me do i really appreciate the benefit that i get from each each of those okay when you study karma you know like this, uh, the general points of karma, the specific points of karma. Make examples from your own life, you know. Different actions I've done, where do they fit in this whole schema, okay? And so in that way, then the teachings really become quite alive for you. Uh-huh. When, you when you meditate on the four truths, and, you know, and you're going through uh, you know, the eight the eight kinds of dukkha of the human realm and the three kinds of dukkha and the six kinds of dukkha. It's not just, you know, one, two, three, four, five, you know? It's not like, okay, Buddhism is a great religion if you like lists, you know? It's not that. It's like, okay, yeah, well, you know, one of the ones in, in the six kinds of, of, of dukkha is... um That nothing's stable. Yeah. And you go, is my life stable? I want it to be stable. Is it stable? Is there some way to really make it stable? You know? And then you go through all the ways that your grasping mind is trying to make everything predictable and stable. And then finally you just say, forget it, <laughs> you know, I can't pin everything down and I can't control everything. So given that things are changing and they're unstable, how can I deal with that, you know? What what meaning does that have for my life? Well, it means that I want to get out of samsara quick because I don't like this situation. And it also means that while I'm in samsara, I have to learn to, ad- to adapt to things on the turn of a dime. You know, that, yeah, things can change really quickly and I just have to learn to adapt. Yeah, Because you begin to see, you know, as much as I try and control everything and make it predictable, that much I make myself miserable. Because I can't do it. Why? Because it's impossible to do in samsara. That's why. It's not like I'm a failure because I can't control everything. It's this, you know... It's it's like wanting to squeeze oil out of sand. Now that's that's it's impossible. So okay, if that's impossible, then how do I deal with the situation, you know, so that it doesn't keep throwing me off? And how do I use that inform, you know, that knowledge that it's uh, you know, unstable to really uh, aspire me to practice the path and get out of this mess. OK, so make examples from your life that pertain to the points. In this way, conviction in their veracity will arise. In addition, you will gain familiarity with the topics so that you will be able to remember and apply them during your daily life. Yeah. And so that's, you know, really the beauty, when you become very familiar with the different meditations. And then something happens in your life and you go, ah, this is an example of that meditation. Yeah. Your best friend calls you up and says, I can't stand you anymore. And it's like, oh, I was just meditating that everything is unstable in samsara. Here's a really good example. Yeah, exactly what the Buddha talked about. Okay. And then, you know, and then that helps you accept that situation when when you're there. When you reach a conclusion through your, your reflection or a strong understanding of the topic arises in your mind, Seize the analytical meditation, and with stabilizing meditation, focus your mind one-pointedly on the meaning you discovered or the experience you gained. Okay, so when you've done the outline, you know, and you, something shifted in your mind, you have some experience, you have really like, oh, wow, yeah, this is true, then stop and just... Let the mind sit there on that conclusion, on that experience. Yeah, It will fade after a while. When it fades, you can either go on to the next thing or you can review the points that got you to that conclusion. Um, but at least let it sink in, you know, so that it really influences you. Employing both analytical and stabilizing meditation to the topics in this way is important for gaining and sustaining an understanding of the path. Okay, so for, ga- for gaining the understanding, you do the analytic meditation. For sustaining it and really integrating it, you do the stabilizing meditation. For example, to meditate on precious human life, First, make an outline of the eight freedoms and ten fortunes and add other pertinent points, you know, because within the meditation on the precious human life, you have the eight freedoms, you have the ten fortunes, then you have the uh, causes to attain the uh, precious human life. There's three points under that. Then you have the rarity of attaining The the, Precious Human Life, there's, you know, some more points under that. So you have an outline. You may not get through the whole outline in one meditation. Maybe you just do the 8 and the 10 in one meditation, or maybe just the 8 in one session, the 10 in another. I mean, you see how you're going and how much, you know, and, and there's... It's not like an exact recipe. You can decide yourself how much time you spend on each point, you know, and each time you do the meditation, it's going to be a bit different this way. And make different examples each time, too. Okay. So you have uh, your outline, yeah? then do the six preparatory practices so those you can do very very slowly and do your lamrim, rim you know in 10 or 20 minutes or you can do the preliminary the preparatory practices quicker and then have more time for the lam rim again it's up to you and you can do it differently each time you do it okay So then after the six preparatory practices, contemplate the points one by one, thinking about them logically and relating them to your life. Okay. So really try and understand each, each point. Don't just say, you know, Oh, well, precious human life. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm free from being born, born in a barbaric land. You know, and there you think, you know, barbaric like, you know, I don't know what your image of barbaric is, something you saw in the movies. What? White House. Yeah, so, but the no, then you go, oh, no, the de- the Buddhist definition of barbaric is the White House, <laughs> you know. It is a place where the Dharma is not rooted, yeah, and where, you know, it's, yeah, where the Dharma isn't rooted, and people aren't geared towards liberation, and some of whom even have a hard time with ethical conduct, let alone liberation, you know. And so, and and then think, you know, okay, well, what what does what is a barbaric place? And then, you know, am I free from it? And <clears throat> Uh, If I live in somewhere that's kind of a barbaric place, but kind of not, you know, then how can I uh, make it, make my life less influenced by the barbaric part and more influenced by the sane part? Yeah. And how can I bring forgiveness and love and compassion to the barbaric part? Okay. And, you know, you really try and think of this in terms of your own life. Yeah. Oh, can you just imagine if people heard that I, we call this a barbaric country? They'd freak out. Yeah. But we have technology and we have science. Well, that's wonderful. But, you know, being barbaric or not depends on your mental state not on your level of scientific and technological development. Yeah? I mean, think about it. Is an atom bomb using the atom bar- bomb? Isn't that kind of barbaric? Yeah. So it's not like barbarians have spears and, you know, and are scantily dressed, like you know, like that. No, they'd be wearing suits, and you know, have huge computers in front of them. Okay. So, talk continuing to talk about precious human life. When you feel a sense of appreciation for your life and an eagerness to use it for Dharma practice, you have reached the proper conclusion. Okay, so you know what the conclusion, what you're supposed to feel. And when you feel that, oh, okay, I got it, yeah. So, you know, it's not like every time you do the meditation, too. It's like, oh, yes, I got it. I really have a precious human life. This is wonderful. It's like sometimes you do the the meditation and you get some experience and sometimes you do it and not so much, but... All the times you do it and you don't get so much experience are the causes for the time you do it and you have a strong experience. Okay. So it's not like getting something out of a, a, you know, what are the machine called? um, You put in your quarter and you get your potato chips. What? Yeah, vending machines. So it's not like, you know, yeah, every time I put in my quarter, although now it's probably much more for a dollar for chips. (laughs) Oh, and all they do is harm your health. Anyway, okay, it's not like, you know, you put in all your quarters and every time you're going to get your thing of chips because that's the way the ben- vending machine works. So, okay, I did the meditation every time I should get some experience from it. No, it's it's more like, you know, the, the you you do it and then you build up to it. Yeah. And and so you just do the meditation and like I said all the times when nothing special happens they're creating the cause for the time when you really have a, a deep experience so don't worry about it okay because remember so much of what we're doing is about planting seeds it's about familiarizing ourselves and familiarity comes slowly doesn't it it's like learning to type uh, did do you remember Typing high school, I learned to type in high school, you know. Do you remember that? <sighs> I never learned to type numbers. It's too stretch too much of a stretch for my fig- fingers. But you know, it's like you don't learn to type the first day, do you? Yeah, and it takes a lot of practice. and some days, you know, when you have the test to see how fast you t- type, you do really well, and some days you blow it. And that's all part of the process, yeah? So it's not like, you know, you're here, and then it's a steady increase. It's like, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Um Okay, so at that point, stop thinking about the points and let your mind dwell on the fact that you have a precious human life and the feelings of being extremely fortunate. So they say that you should feel like a beggar who just found a jewel in a pile of mud. Okay, if that example doesn't resonate, it's like being a kid and going into Toys or Us with somebody else's credit card. Okay? (laughs) It's like, wow, I am so fortunate. Yeah. When you are interested in the long-term topics, your reflection and analysis will keep your attention on the subject. That helps bring your mind to a focused state. If you find stabilizing meditation difficult because your mind is easily distracted, put more emphasis on checking meditation. Okay? And for some people, you know, people always come in, it's like, I want to develop my concentration. Yeah, it's like, I want to do my analytic meditations. I want to develop samadhi. Yeah. But then, you know, you're trying to develop samadhi, and what are you thinking about? Okay, well, I'm thinking about what size are the Buddha statues for the altar? How, how big is, are we going to have a stage in front of it or not? How many steps up to the stage? How tall is the statue? How recessed in are the, are the, the bookshelves? And that's a good meditation. At least it's, you know, something constructive, you know. Otherwise, you know, it's like, oh, you know, this happened 15 years ago, and then, and then that person did this, and, you know, na and, on and on. Or Donnie, you know, what's he doing? He feels he's whining again. God, I can't stand these people that whine. Oh, I whine too. <laughs> but my whining isn't so bad, you know. I just own it. I say I'm complaining. He doesn't own his whining. He complains all the time and is like, Okay, so that's when I don't have such a good meditation. So, you know, kind of designing the altar is, is yeah, much better. So, you know, you get distracted, you want to attain samadhi, and you know, looks what's going through your mind. Okay. So you have to deal with all those distractions. Yeah? The best way to deal with those distractions is learn the thought training and the Lam Rim. Yeah? If you learn those two texts and the meditations in them, then when these distractions come up, you'll have the methods to counteract them. Okay? And the nice thing about doing the Lam Rim thought thought training meditations Or mind training meditations, is you're following a sequence of thoughts and steps, so you're analyzing something, yeah, and you're coming to a conclusion. So you are developing some concentration if you can go from the first, the beginning, the first point to the end point without going to, you know, what are the what material are the are the the deer and the the Dharma wheels gonna be made of. Are they gonna be made in Nepal and that costs five thousand dollars? Maybe it's cheaper and why, you know maybe we should really try and do it with with um, what do you call plexiglass? No. Fiberglass after all, but no, that's no good. Uh, concrete, no, that doesn't work. You know, so at least if you're you know if you do analytical meditation, at least you can stay on something. You know, the point of the meditation will anchor you and you can go from one point to the next and at least concentrate on that. Yeah? With that analytical med- meditation, it seems that if you're lucky, like you were saying, working it, working it out. Mm-hmm. Is it working? then you're gonna get that moment of samadhi in the sense that you arrive at a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And then that's gonna envelop your mind. So you're Mm -hmm. gonna get a taste of that one-pointedness at that point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you just stay there on that experience at that point. Yeah. Okay. Near the end of the session, it is helpful to relate the topic that you meditated on to the method and wisdom aspects of the path. In other words, bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness, respectively. Okay, so method side of the path, yeah, renunciation, bodhicitta, wisdom side, you know, the correct view of emptiness. For example, if your meditation topic is the ten non-virtues, First, reflect on them in terms of your own life. Then reflect that, like you, other sentient beings have engaged in these non-virtues and will have to experience their results. Okay, So don't sit and enumerate everybody else's non-virtuous actions. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that person I can't stand. Yeah, he kills, and he steals, and he sleeps around, and he likes. He's done all 12 of the 10 (laughs) non-virtues. Yeah. He needs to, to purify. No, you're not meditating on it that way. Okay. But you look and say, oh, wow, you know, like you know, Donnie and Pat Cipollone and, you know, they're all under the the sway of of afflictions and karma. And this is what is, you know, what it's bringing about in their lives and how, you know, the karma they create, how they influence everybody else. So it's not just about me, and I've done all ten non-virtues, but other beings too, And just like I'm going to have to experience the results if I don't purify, they're have they going to have to experience the results if they don't purify. And just as I don't want to suffer as a result of my negative actions, neither do they. And so can I have some compassion for them, wishing them to be free of suffering and wishing them to be free of the afflictions that make them create these non-virtues. Okay, so you take that topic and then you know you use it to, to uh, think a little bit about love and compassion and bodhicitta, the myths inside of the path. Okay, and then um, generate the wish to become a Buddha in order to lead them on the path to liberation so that they will be free of experiencing painful results and the afflictions that cause them. Okay. So first you meditate on yourself, then, you know, yeah, that person that I've been hating for the last 25 years, they're in this situation too. How stupid is it that I hate them? You know, when they're in the same situation as me. Then reflect that all these karmas and their results are empty of true existence. They they arise and they function dependently, like a dream, uh, and do not exist in the way they appear. When you have meditated, okay, so that's the wisdom aspect, think of that. When you have meditated on a particular topic sufficiently, imagine the Buddha who's been on your head dissolving into light, you know, and dissolves into you and merges with your mind at your heart chakra at the center of your t- chest. So we usually, you know, when we have strong emotions, we usually say here. So that's why we think of the Buddha dissolving into light and coming to, to rest here, you know. So don't like, okay, my mind's there. Now my mind has to merge with the Buddha's mind. And the Buddha's mind is the ball of light that is three inches by two inches and what color, my mind has to be a ball of light, but what color is that and how do I get the two kinds of light, one light blue and one light yellow and they become green when they merge. Don't drive yourself crazy, okay? And don't drive me crazy by asking those questions. Okay you can tell the kind of questions people have asked me before not you know our minds sometimes get so you know caught up in something very small like this no you're just feeling yeah like you your mind and the buddha's mind have become undifferentiable and you know and you just think for a minute oh what would it be like for me to feel like the buddha does and to apprehend things like the buddha does and you imagine that for a minute you know and if you're feeling lonely when the buddha dissolves into you you think you know here's the buddha full of love and compassion who's my best friend and you know he's dissolving into me and merging with my mind and you know, who feels lonely then okay As mentioned previously, do not expect instant results or fantastic peak experiences. Instead, be satisfied with gradual growth in your compassion and wisdom and seek stable, steady change. By meditating consistently, your understanding will develop over the months and years. So the chief word in that sentence was consistently. Yeah, because sometimes we'll, you know, do one day of strong meditation and then we won't meditate for the next week. Yeah, so then, you know, you get something and then you lose it. So better to do something consistently each day, you know, and that way you can really build something steady in your mind. At the conclusion of a session, dedicate the merit created from your meditation to attain awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. The primary purpose of dedicating the merit is to make the results of our virtue inexhaustible, lasting until all sentient beings attain full awakening. Okay? So you're dedicating it for the highest possible A most long-lasting goal, okay? Okay, while the merit can still bring good results before awakening, it will not be exhausted until awakening is attained. Okay, so if we dedicate, we do a practice, we dedicate, you know, For, uh, you know, like we dedicate, you know, due to this merit may I attain the state of Guru Buddha, you know, so that I may be able to liberate all sentient beings to, to awakening. When you dedicate like that, then that merit will not run dry until that goal is accomplished. If you dedicate, by this merit, may I attain a good rebirth, then when you dedicate that, when you attain that good rebirth, then that merit has been consumed. It's ripened. If you dedicate it for awakening, then as a byproduct, because in order to attain awakening, you need certain conditions in samsara so that you can practice. So as a byproduct of dedicating for awakening, then you have a good rebirth. Okay. So, you can just dedicate for awakening, or you can say, I dedicate for awakening, and may I have a whole series of good rebirths so that I can practice consistently and attain awakening. Okay. Now, sometimes there's some confusion um, about this, yeah, because it says that. Uh, the the merit will become inexhaustible until you reach awakening. Yeah. So, but then when you come to chapter six of um, of Chandakirti's, you know, supplement to to Nagarjuna's uh, Middle Way, uh, and not chapter six in that text, chapter four, the chapter about patience or fortitude. There, it talks about what happens, uh, how anger and wrong views can destroy our merit. And then you get confused, saying, but the teacher just said that it's inexhaustible till I attain awakening, and now they're saying it can be destroyed. So what is it? Okay, If you don't destroy your merit, it will be inexhaustible. Until you attain awakening, but if you get angry and destroy your merit, then it's not going to be inexhaustible. Okay, because you've impinged on it. Hmm? Okay. So while the merit can still bring good results before awakening, it will not be exhausted until awakening is attained. By connecting even small virtue to the wider vision of the awakening of all sentient beings, you bring an extraordinary dimension to this small action. Okay? It immerses your mind in bodhicitta, increases your generosity, and practices, uh, expands your rejoicing at virtue. Yeah, because dedicating your merit is also a practice of generosity and a practice of rejoicing. In addition, yeah. so you're not just bringing bodhicitta into your dedication of merit, you also want to bring the wisdom aspect into your dedication. So in addition, seal the dedication by reflecting that you as the agent, the merit you are dedicating, the awakening you are dedicating to attain, and the sentient beings you wish to benefit are all empty of existing from their own side, but they exist dependent on one another." So you reflect, you know, just a short time on dependent arising and how all because these things are dependent on each other, therefore they are empty. Mm -hmm. Okay. As Nagarjuna says in Praise to the Super Mundane, there exists no agent, no subject to, no merit exists. They arise through dependence. Through dependently arisen, though dependently arisen, they are unborn. So you have proclaimed, O master of words. Master of words is talking about the Buddha. When it says that things are unborn in verses like this, it means that things do not arise from an inherently, an inherently existent cause. The process is not inherently existent, and the result from that cause is not inherently existent either. Okay? Because what's interesting here is, you know, okay, the agent the merit, the the goal I'm dedicating, the the sentient beings who are gonna dedicate, the way we think about them is, okay, I'm sitting here. There's me, yeah, and I am creating merit. So there's me here, there's merit, that's somewhere there, okay? There's the sentient beings that I'm dedicating for, they're a little bit further out, Okay, there's the enlightenment that I'm dedicating to attain. That's up. (laughs) Okay, and they're all sitting out there uh, waiting for me to connect them. Okay, so I'm the agent creating the merit, you know, before the merit has even been created. I'm just the agent. And the merit's sitting out there waiting to be created. Sentient beings are, you know, they're always waiting for enlightenment, yeah. And so, I mean, that's the way things look to us, don't they? Everything is something distinct, yeah. But actually, you can't have the one creating the merit unless you have the merit that's being created and the activity that's creating the merit, and if you're dedicating for Enlightenment, you, you know, there has to be the enlightenment you're dedicating for. There has to be the sentient beings who are going to, uh, uh, you know, benefit. And all these things, kind of, they become all the pieces of the puzzle at the same time that they're put together. Okay, so we think of all the different things. It's kind of like a puzzle, okay? So here's what there's me, that's one piece. Cut in one shape, and there's the merit, and there's the enlightenment, and here's the sentient beings, and there's the, the, no, with the enlightenment, there's the activity, okay, and they're all out there, and then when I create the merit, all I do is I find which things, like in a puzzle, you know, which things kind of hook into each other, (laughs) you know, now I got it, okay. But it's not like that. It's not like all these things are independently out there. You know? This doesn't become an action creating merit unless there's somebody doing the action. And unless there's a virtuous motivation, you know? And there's no merit unless there's, you know, someone doing the action and and that, you know, you need all these things to 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 have any of them. Okay. Okay. So it's, it's like baseball, you know? We think, you know, there's Joe DiMaggio. He's a, Joe, he's a baseball player, right? Yeah, he was. Was, was. Way, way. Oh, let's take Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. Yeah, that name's easier to, to say. Joe DiMaggio is a little harder. Okay, so there's Babe Ruth, okay? He's just sitting out there, you know, and there's some pitcher, and there's a ball, and uh, there's a bat, and uh you know they're they're all out there and and then there's the trajectory of that home run, okay, and they're all there, you know, it's an independent bat, an independent ball, an independent. Cat pitcher and a catcher and a batter, you know, and they're all like frozen, they have their own essence. That's the way they appear to us. But the batter, you know, is Babe Ruth. Is he a batter when he's at home watching TV? He's not batting anything. Yeah, when he's at home watching TV, he's a couch potato. He's not a batter. Yeah. And when the ball is, you know, when a three-year-old is playing with the ball and and rolling it and the dog's chasing it, it's not really a baseball. It just becomes a dog's toy and a child's toy. Yeah. And the pitcher, you know... When he's at home doing the dishes, he's a dishwasher. He's not a pitcher. Uh-huh. So it isn't like all these things are kind of out there and one thing is only that, independent of the activity, you know? Yeah. I mean, he was only a baseball player because the game of baseball exists. Without the game of baseball, he wouldn't be a baseball player. Yeah, and the Hall of Fame exists, you know, simply because somebody invented it, had that idea, and then thought, oh, we should put baseball players and football players and, you know, in it. Yeah. They didn't think of, you know, bad athletes like me, and maybe we should have a Hall of Fame for people who try, but they swing the bat. (laughs) And the ball goes right by them. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it makes us really think a little bit how it's the situation, all the factors in the situation that make any particular factor in the situation what it is. Okay. They're not out there independently. So while none of the elements of a dedication, the person, the merit, and so forth, exist inherently, they exist nominally by being merely designated by name and concept. And our mind goes, no, he's a real inherent baseball player. He's not just designated by name and concept. You don't put a name and concept in that Hall of Fame, you put Babe Ruth in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, but who in the world is Babe Ruth? Which Babe Ruth are you putting in? The one that hit the first home run? The one that hit the second home run? The third run? You know, which, you make the statue of Babe Ruth. Which statue? How old is he? You know? Do you put the little baby babe, Babe Ruth? Yeah, do you put the Babe Ruth's on his deathbed? Who was the Babe Ruth that got into the Hall of Fame? Okay? So then you see, oh yeah, maybe, you know, my mind has something to do with it. What?
1: <laughs> the candy bar? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. isn't it Be- Be- it's Be- it's a oh, Beirut? It's Oh Beirut. <laughs> she <laughs> 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 okay. very <laughs> the The emptiness of their emptiness of inherent existence and their conventional existence are not contradictory. Reflecting in this way increases our understanding of the compatibility of emptiness and dependent arising, and prevents us from becoming arrogant, because we realize we're not. You know, look at me. I'm the great merit creator. You know, inherently creating merit. you know, no, we realize no, that's not how it is. Okay. Okay. So any questions so far? Yeah.
1: So uh, Cheryl online has asking, can merit get destroyed even after it's already been dedicated for awakening?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we've we've dedicated it all for awakening. But if we get angry afterwards and generate wrong views, we destroy it. Yeah? So, yeah. It's not like you... The the question was if you've generated it all for awakening, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. If you've dedicated it for awakening, can it still be destroyed? Yes. Mm -hmm. Another question is... I wonder, if I have committed heavy destructive actions, should I continuously, without end, include purification practice in my daily practices, ongoing, or can one let it go at some point?
0: Um, I think we should do some purification every single day because whether we've created heavy negativities or not, we every day we create some negativities. Okay? So it's good to do it... it um, every day. And for things, you know, that feel very heavy, you you do it in until you know it really you really um, make peace with it. Yeah. And let it go. And when I say let it go, I don't mean you say, oh well that was just a small thing, doesn't matter. I killed somebody, but you know, okay, I'm letting it go. So what? No, it's like I always regret having done that. Yeah. And I'm never going to rejoice in it, but I'm not, I don't necessarily have to think about that specific action every single day. I can think all the negativities I've created. Yeah. But some days, you know, that feeling is there of something we did in the past that we really feel strong regret for. So then you really think of that specific thing and for as long as you need to. Mm-hmm. Yesterday
1: I was working on that and I realized that the shame grabs me. Mm. And I work on releasing that shame. Right. And not to give it power. Right. Y- yes, I have done something that I'm not proud of it, but now I'm not doing it, and I pray that I won't do it again, and drop that shame,
0: stop grabbing me and putting me in place. And that's what imagining the light from the Buddha reinforces. Yeah, because you can't feel shame when the light of the Buddha is flowing into you. Yeah, because the Buddha has no use for shame and shame is just it's just a defilement for me I, I, it's the self-grasping oh yeah I'm keep you here. yeah yeah and you say light from the buddha purifies all that shame comes out as it comes out it's coming out in the form of you know centipedes and scorpions and gunk and yeah. disappears
1: what you you started the, your uh, uh, teaching tonight about? You know, I don't like that person. I had a thought today, uh, yesterday, about that. I don't like that person, and I go to a place like I have a lot of negative thoughts, and sometimes like it pulls me down, mm-hmm. and I was able to. I says no, now you're going to do something good for that person. Yeah. And I was thinking of you when you, you went to say hi to everybody, you talked to everybody, some people that you thought uh, you would yeah. never talk about. Uh-huh. So I said, no, you're going to do something kind toward that person. Mm-hmm. And it kind of removed that power over me, that thought, mm-hmm. because, yeah, I feel bad because I have bad thoughts. And this is what I need, I I found that is important for me to release. Mm -hmm. that I'm not giving power to that right now. This is, it just starts passing by. Don't grab
0: it and counteract it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Okay, so we'll stop here.